If you're a small business owner looking to grow or expand your business, check out OnDeck Business Loans. OnDeck offers business loans online from $5,000 to $500,000, and their simple application process only takes 10 minutes. Unlike banks, they'll give you a decision quickly, and funding is as fast as one day. Get a free consultation with an OnDeck loan advisor. Visit OnDeck.com podcast. This is the Customer Equity Accelerator. If you are a marketing executive who wants to deliver bottom line impact by identifying and connecting with revenue generating customers, then this is the show for you. I'm your host, Allison Hartsoe, CEO of Ambition Data. Each week, I bring you the leaders behind the customer-centric revolution who share their expert advice. Are you ready to accelerate? Then let's go. Welcome everyone. Today's show is about customer-centric research strategies. And to help me discuss this topic is Jody Antipas. Jody is the VP of Research at Electronic Arts and also an audience favorite from our first customer-centric conference and, and someone I just love talking to. Jody, welcome to the show. Hi, Allison. Thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit more about your background and how you were drawn to this topic. Because as far as I know, you know, in, in college, maybe academics study research strategy, but it wasn't as much of a professional line at that time as it is perhaps now. How did you get to this point? Yeah, it's pretty interesting that I stumbled into this career. Um, I think I've always had a real passion for understanding people and real curiosity around people. Um, and the decisions that they make and product choices or situations that could really be better for customers or consumers, even if at the time as a kid I didn't realize um, that that was customer experience or that's what it was. I have a funny memory of my sister. Um, she's a couple of years older than I am, so I was probably about 10 and watching her always try to swallow pills. And she would gag basically any time that she tried to swallow a pill. And she'd grown out of taking, you know, the, the liquid or the chewables. And I kept watching her doing this, thinking there's got to be a better way. You know, I'm going to solve this problem for her when I get older. I'm going to, you know, create something so that she can swallow pills. Um, you know, obviously that didn't happen. Somebody else got around to it sooner than I did. And my parents didn't want me tampering with medicine in the medicine cabinet. But, um, you know, something that I've always kind of keyed in on is, is how um, that experience was bad for her, but how many other people out there were like her and had that same problem. Isn't that amazing how when we're kids, like the things that really drive us as an adult in our career, you know, kind of surface as kids, you, you have this tendency, this natural inclination. Yeah, I don't think I knew um, that that's what that was at the time, but um, it, it ended up being kind of core to who I am and, and what I do today. I have another funny story. Um, my parents like to tell this story, how when I was about 12, I think I saved my money and bought an alarm clock, which is kind of a strange thing for a 12-year-old to do and, and save your money for, but I wasn't much of a morning person. Um, yes, and I can vouch for this because I have a 12-year-old boy. <laughs> you're probably trying to drag out of bed every morning. Exactly. <laughs> um, so I bought this alarm clock. It was a Sony alarm clock, and um, a few months after I bought it, it stopped working. Um, so I tried to take it back to the store. Um, and they wouldn't take it back. And then I called customer service and, you know, there was nothing that they could do. And somehow I tracked down, this is, you know, long before the internet age, somehow I tracked down the name and address of the president of Sony of America. Um, and I, I wrote him a letter and I no. sent him my, my alarm clock back <laughs> in the box. And I said, this doesn't work. And I have an expectation that, you know, I saved my money and I need an alarm clock. And, you know, a few months later or maybe a few weeks later, a new alarm clock and a letter from the president of, Sh of Sony showed up at my house. So I think... Is that right? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I've always really been interested in, um, you know, what today is known as user experience or customer experience, um, even though I didn't really know what that was uh, back in the 80s. Oh, my gosh. I can't believe you actually did that. That's fantastic. It's one of those things that everybody was like, oh, well, you could write a letter to the president, and then nobody ever does it. But you did. I did. That's fantastic. <laughs> I had a bad user experience, and you're responsible. That's right. <laughs> That's fantastic. Okay, so as a kid, you clearly had an interest in user experience. How did you get from that point to electronic arts? 
Um, yeah, so fast forward about 15, 15, 20 years, and I was working at a small consulting firm that focused on the sports industry. And so in that role, I did a ton of primary and secondary research, essentially with no training. Um, and my boss would always comment on how thorough my research was and, you know, how good I was at uncovering things that they hadn't expected or things that they hadn't, um, you know, known were going to be issues or potential issues. And about the same time while I was, I was doing that while I was in business school and about the same time I had one of my uh, statistics professors look at me and said, you, you should really take a data mining course. You're pretty good at this. And I kind of scoffed at him and was like, data mining? No, I'm here to do marketing. Um, thank you very much. So, um, but little did I know again that that would um, you know, play a part in my future. And after I finished getting my MBA, I started working at a very small research agency and we focused on public health issues, things like smoking cessation and traffic safety and, you know, healthy pregnancies in women, um, which is pr pretty interesting topics to work on. But I decided after a few years of that that I wanted to work in-house on a bigger consumer brand. And I joined Nintendo around the time of uh, the Wii launching back in 2007. Um, and that was really the entry, my entry into the gaming industry. Well, perfect timing there. Yep. No kidding. Wow. Wow. And then, um, yeah, joined EA about three years after I'd been at Nintendo and have been at EA for the past eight years in a variety of insights roles. Wow, that's a, that's a fantastic path. So tell us a little bit more about what do you do on an everyday basis or what your team does? Yeah, my team, um, I lead research for EA, and my team includes our consumer insights team and our user experience research team. And so we do all of the product research, um, product development, you know, concept, um, thinking about games that are coming in development, what features we're going to put in them, what games we should have in our portfolio. We look at uh, user segmentation or player segmentation, um, our our user experience research teams, we have eight labs around the world, and we bring players into our labs on a weekly basis, and they're giving that feedback directly to our production and creative teams that are building the games. Um, so that's very customer-focused. And then no on the, kidding. Yeah. So we have um, you know, eight labs around the world. You can come in. We have producers and developers, designers in the back rooms watching the uh, feedback on their games um, typically every week. And um, then on the marketing side, we do basically all the research that you would need to do to take a game to market. So that's positioning or communication strategy, target audience identification, really anything that can help with a go-to-market campaign. You really got the full span of customer. And when we talk about customer-centric research, it's not just marketing. It's product development. It does it get it, And it gets into satisfaction as well too, right? Yeah. So it's really the full scope. Yes, we do product satisfaction research as well. We have a pretty robust NPS program that we run internally here at EA. And I think one of the unique things about our team um, in research here at EA and the way we're structured is it's a little bit different than how some other companies tend to keep user experience and consumer insights separate. In many companies, they have consumer insights focuses primarily on the marketing or the brand or communications and UX focuses on product research. And we actually have our teams um, work more closely together. And I think that really serves us well because you want what you communicate about the product to actually be true of the product and true of the user. So you're not just developing for one particular audience and then trying to sell it doing completely separate research. I think those two, it, it really serves us well having the two teams working closely together. Oh, that, that is a very good insight, and that's the, something that we don't see every day, and that's also what happens with companies like EA that are leading the way, is the org structures start to change because you end up with such a tight focus on the customer that it's not, it doesn't make sense to have um, divisions where everyone should be working more tightly together. So that's that's a really great point. Tell us a little bit more about customer-centric research and you know how that research landscape may have changed from what we might traditionally think of as research. You were just talking about you know the CX uh, focusing on brand and the UX focusing on product traditionally. That's obviously one change. Are there other changes for what real customer-centric research is? I think there's a couple of things. One is in the past 10 years or so, there have been a plethora of online tools that that um, researchers can use to make research much faster. 
and make the turnaround time much faster, which is particularly important in the tech industry where we see you know, product changes happening um, really quickly. So that's really helped us. When I started my career, we were doing, you know, this is going to date me, but we were doing mail surveys and online random digit dialing surveys for public opinion polling. And so um, things are quite a bit different now, and we're lucky here working in the tech industry that we can basically source an online sample um, and have it be representative of our player base. Um, also, mobile phone research is really um, quite a bit more popular. Everybody's basically carrying around not just a camera and a cell phone, but also a, a survey response tool in their pocket. Um, so it's a lot easier to do kind of real-time quick ethnographic studies on what's happening and where you are and what does your environment look like. Do the online tools also prepackage the way that you look at the data? In other words, is it easy for them to capture certain pieces of information, but hard for them to capture other pieces of information that might predisposition the research to tilt one way or another? So for example, you know, if I'm running social media, it's easy to see a like, but a like may or may not be indicative of something I care about. Right. You, you have to be responsible for your own sampling, typically in research. So all statistics, you have to have a good, clear sample. And so sampling strategy hasn't changed too much or sampling theory hasn't changed too much. Just the tools that you can use to reach the audiences have changed. So once you collect the data, I think um, a lot of the tools do make it easier for you to slice and dice the data or populate charts and make it a little bit faster um, and make your research process more nimble. To answer your question about sampling, I think, um, or one of the things you were getting at with, with asking about social media, is we do see different types of audiences gravitating towards different um, online communities. So we have a pretty, in gaming, we have a pretty... Um, heavy audience that focuses and listens to or, or reads Reddit. And so that's one area where we pay attention to, but we also know that it's not the entire audience. So when we're doing our research, we're looking at those people who are on our boards and on our blogs and on Reddit and on our, our social channels and definitely taking into account their voice, but also we have to weigh that against the entire population. So if we're looking at FIFA and we've got 20 million players, we know some of them are going to be communicating with us on those online tools and message boards and, and Reddit. But we also know that probably, you know, upwards of 15 million of them are not, and we have to take into, into account their voices as well. Oh, that's fascinating, because I think we, we tend to think of the online world as um, maybe more homogenous. You know, it's people who are online versus people who are offline. And ideally, it's really not like that. It's a reflection of the offline world. And understanding the the rich pockets where you get different voices in different areas uh, just shows how much you've really listened to those people and, and what they're saying in those areas so that you can separate it. I think that's why people don't typically separate it. Would you agree? Is that, is that a, you know, do people tend to look at it in binary colors? I think many other industries, they might. We absolutely cannot um, because you said, you know, there's the, the online and the offline and our whole consumer base is online. And so there's different groups within that online consumer base who, who have differing opinions and different engagement with the product. We can, we can typically splice our um, consumer audiences by engagement in terms of how many days they'll play our game. And we see vastly different every, anywhere, um, you know, in FIFA from 300 plus days of playing the game per year to people who buy the game and play it for, for just one day. Um, so with that, we know we have, we have to basically cut our audience data um, by engagement as one view of what we're looking at. But that also implies that you've connected all the data. Was that a big challenge to performing research to be able to do your job effectively? Yeah, that's actually one of the, I think, the, the newer um, innovations in research or, or newer skills that we have in research um, is tying the attitudinal data. So typically survey research is about what do you think, um, and you, we used to ask a lot more about what people did in surveys. We used to ask a lot more about behavioral data, you know, what product mm -hmm. did you own and how many days did you play it and who did you play it with. Now we don't have to ask those things because we can see that in our telemetry or our online data, what people are actually doing in our games. And so it really helps us to be able to marry the behavioral data, kind of the what's happening with the why is it happening. 
Yeah, that that makes perfect sense. And you know, tell us a little bit about the kind of person who plays games with electronic arts. Uh, are they, you know, typically coming back once in a while? Are they really embedded? How how do you think about them? I don't think I can answer about the typical person. That's a little bit like asking about the typical American. Uh, we Good have for you. we have so many people. We think we have you know three hundred million players that we, you know, we engage with and there's no one way to describe them. So we have people that are really, you know, engaged in one particular game and we have people who are coming in and playing our subscription service and are playing um, throughout many games. And so one of the things that we've focused on in the past few years is looking as we have access to better data and have access to the telemetry and the behavioral data is we've been able to look more closely at the different audience cohorts and different segments. And we've been, um, spending a lot of time looking at target audience identification and really focusing on who are the players that come in early, who are the players that come a little bit later, and what are, do these different cohorts and different audiences want so that they will stay engaged in the game. Probably about 10 years ago, EA's focus was really on selling games um, and focused on you know selling games to the consumer. And one of the things that we've learned over the past few years is that we really want players to be engaged in our games. We want them to come back and experience our games and play it and have a good time. Um, we know that when they do that, they're more likely to purchase the next game and they're more likely to get their friends to play our games. Um, and it's better for us and it's better for them. So we're no longer are we just trying to sell games to consumers and have them buy a one-time purchase, but gaming is much more about a relationship um, and an, an ongoing experience that we want them to have. Jody, I absolutely love that comment. I cannot tell you how many conversations I have with marketing teams who are still trying to respond to just sell the product, just sell the product, and, and they still think about it. And it's like fingers on a chalkboard for me when somebody says funnel, because yes, there are funnels online, and we do analyze funnels, but the concept that I'm just going to shove a whole bunch of people through a narrow funnel, and if I get enough reach, then I'll get enough conversion, is so outdated. And what you just said, is really about pulling about playing the long game and pulling people through from the back half of the satisfaction, the continued engagement. I love those measures. I'm sure you have some examples around um, you know how how you've done that or how you've executed that with different products at EA. Yeah, I think one of the examples that I can talk about is our FIFA products. And about five years ago, we started to see a lot more growth in North America as a result of some of the marketing that we were doing. And so, you know, the, the objective was go out and understand these new players that are coming in. And that led to some really interesting insights about them and how we can, you know, change the game and change some of our communications to drive their engagement a little bit higher. So the first thing we did when we were, you know, trying to learn about this audience is we started with ethnographic research. So we went into their homes. We asked in some cases that they invite their friends over, the people that they would usually play with, and we just watch them. We observe them, um, and then we talk to them after their gaming session. One of the things that we found was that in these groups of newer players, there was typically one um, kind of football-focused fan. Sorry, when I say football, I actually mean soccer. Um, one one soccer-focused fan, somebody who had some connection, whether it was a family member or, you know, um, family history or particular fandom of a team, typically in Latin America or Europe. Um, and this one friend was really rallying the rest of the group to get engaged or introducing them to FIFA. And because the game is pretty easy to pick up and play, it allows larger social experiences up to four on four. Um, it's actually pretty fun for people to watch if you're not playing and there's low barriers to un entry in terms of understanding what's happening on the screen. But we found that the newer players didn't really know a lot about the sport. And oftentimes they thought they did. So I remember vividly being um, in an interview with one participant who said, oh, I'm a huge soccer fan. I watch every week. I play the game. Um, and then a few sentences later said that he didn't really understand offsides. And that was a key insight for us, that even if these players were telling us that they really understood the sport and they were huge fans, so once we dug a little deeper, we could tell that they didn't. So if you ask any, you know, hardcore football fan in England, you know, if somebody doesn't know offsides, um, you know, that's, they're, they're not even a football fan, right? They shouldn't even be allowed in the stadium. So what we learned was that one of the things, we, we needed to not just onboard them to the game, 
which is pretty common in video gaming, teaching people which buttons to push and, and what to do as they're learning a new game. But we needed to better onboard them to the sport. And this finding allowed us to dig into our, our quantitative research and really slice our data based on knowledge of soccer. And then we could see different behaviors. Like, you know, if you, you had low knowledge of soccer, you were less likely to play in multiple modes in the game. You were less likely to play um, in our FIFA Ultimate Team mode, which is a pretty sticky experience, which keeps you coming back, um, you know, typically multiple times per week. And so what we wanted to do is teach them through the game more about soccer, give them a more of a connection to the sport um, and to a team that they could um, become a fan of or a player that they could become a fan of so that we could um, get them more engaged in the game and so that they would have a better experience. I love that. And, and it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but in taking all of the ethnographic research in and all the commentary in, you probably had a number of different nuggets that came out of that that formed a hypothesis that would have said something like, if the knowledge is low, then we suspect that the engagement may also be low. And so you decided to slice the data based on that insight. Is that what typically happens in the way you conduct research? Is, is that the, the methodology where you kind of pick different, I, I call it the tip of the spear, you know, the way that you're going to slice data in order to see the insights open up? Yeah, we typically start with hypotheses, even in the qualitative, um, the qualitative sessions of our work. So we kind of know what we're going out there and looking for. Um, in this particular project, one of the hypotheses was around, is there a lot more play on college campuses among that 18 to 24 population? So we did some work with those. Um, but we always require that our researchers, when they're taking on a new project, that they work with their business partners, their product development partners, or um, marketing partners on what are the hypotheses? What are the things that we're trying to understand? Because that really leads us to much better research. We can be much more focused on what we're trying to achieve. And then when we come out of qualitative research, we do, we form those hypotheses, we look at all the insights, and then we will make sure we have the right questions in any follow-up quantitative research or that we can cut any existing behavioral data um, that way so that we can then yeah, kind of dig into those. And then it becomes a little bit like a flower. So you dig into one piece and then it opens up a little bit and then you see something else that you might want to dig into. So it's maybe a combination of art and science where you're looking for those nuggets and those insights and then you have to kind of keep drilling down a little bit deeper until you find something that's really interesting that you can then act on. Oh, I love that example. Uh, you know, it is exactly like a flower where you keep opening it up and, and trying different angles. Now, and, and I don't know if it pertains so much to this example as to other examples, but the obvious question for me is, how does that help you avoid confirmation bias, which is something we just are plagued with all the time in in data analytics? Ooh, confirmation bias is a good one. Um, I think having objective researchers um, is really important. And sometimes one way around this is having researchers um, as opposed to your product development leads or your creative directors or your marketers leading the research. They certainly can if you don't have the staff to do that. But um, you know, we find that the researchers are typically a little bit less, you know, married to a particular idea and they're a little bit more willing to be open-minded and that's our job and that's our nature is to do that. So we always encourage people to just listen for what you're looking for, but, you know, listen to all the consumers or don't just go out and talk to the one person who's like you, talk to a whole different set of players. And that's one of the things that we ensure that we are talking to a robust or a diverse audience in our research. So we're not just talking to the people who look most like the, um, you know, the creative director or the marketers. We're talking to a broad set of players. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it sounds like you're talking to a broad set defined in different ways, defined based on the knowledge of soccer, defined based on how many products they're using or how many days they're engaged, or it seems like there's a lot of different ways you can slice that group well beyond what we would typically think of as diversity, which is demographic slicing. Yes, we look a lot at behavioral diversity or attitudinal diversity. So, you know, are you interested in a soccer game? Are you interested in a shooter? Um, are you interested in a simulation game? We look a lot at um, or motivations to play. You know, why do you play games? I play to um, express myself. I play to compete with others. We know that there's diversity and motivations of why people play games as well. I love it. So do you have another example that of different ways that you've used the research to come to an insight? 
Yeah, another example is our Battlefield One game. So this was um, a World War One game that launched a couple of years ago. And what was really interesting about this research was we focused a lot on how we were going to bring the campaign to life and get people really excited about um, playing the game. And when we first went out to learn about how we would do this in our communications, our marketing strategy, we found that players didn't really know a lot about World War One. They weren't particularly educated on it, not just in North America, but kind of around the world. There was a lack of knowledge. Um, and they weren't really interested based on the perceptions that they had of World War One. So they thought World War One meant, you know, slow gameplay, trench warfare, in some cases bayonets, even though we know that's not true. Um, not enough progression, limited weapon variety, or not enough vehicles. Basically, anything that our fans tell us makes the Battlefield franchise exciting and interesting, they didn't expect to have existed in World War One. So it was a big hurdle. We knew um, from the beginning that we had to control the message of the campaign. And that can actually be really difficult in the video game world where people are so excited for the products that are coming out. Anything that leaks even just a tiny bit has the potential to go viral. Um, so we knew that it was really important for us to get out ahead um, with the message and the right message. And we had to be really clear on what were the, the benefits of this game and why should you be excited to play it, even if you think that World War One is going to be really boring. And one of the ways that we did that is we started talking about the game slightly differently. So instead of um, you know, talking directly about World War I or what was happening or what, what the battles were, we started talking about the dawn of all-out war or no battle is ever the same or war on an epic scale. Um, those were signaling to players that this was something new that they hadn't played before. Um, epic scale was this huge battle, which is pretty appealing to players in a shooter game. We weren't hiding that it was a World War I game, but what we were doing was teaching or, or showing them and telling them all of the ways that this game delivered for them, um, what they wanted out of a shooter, and it happened to be set in World War I. World War I was the backdrop for all of these great experiences that they were going to have. We also learned that our video assets and our trailers were going to become really important, so we had to show people, not tell them what this game was going to be about. So if you look at some of our first trailers and our earliest communications about the game, you'll see a, a big variety of things happening. You'll see things like horses or trains or zeppelins, things that hadn't um, previously been released in other shooter games. So it was, it was a new experience, and we were really demonstrating all of these things that could be new and exciting to players that happened to be also a World War I game. So how did you come up with these ideas, though? I mean, it sounds like you, you, you used the research to come to these ideas, and then you found out that they were effective. Was there some um, agile process along the way that kind of led you down this path, as we were talking about before, like the flower unfolding? With this one, we worked pretty closely with our marketing team, and our, um, our ad agency partners, and our internal advertising team. And you know, we started with uncovering the insight with like, oh no, we've got a problem. That was our first round of research was, oh no, we've got a problem when we talk about World War One. There's no um, knowledge there and it's going to be a barrier if we don't communicate that in the right way. And getting the team on board with that as the kind of key strategy was pretty important. Then we actually had a couple of different rounds of research. And as I mentioned, we were a little bit old school in doing this because of the leak potential. So we didn't want it to get out online. So we actually did all of this research in person, which I don't always advocate for. But in the gaming industry, when you're trying to keep something secret, sometimes you have to go back to um, older methods. So we did a ton of in-person research and bringing people into focus groups or one-on-one -on -one interviews and would show them gameplay and ask them questions about it. Uh, we would you know, give them different statements to react to and which one sounded most exciting, which one sounded like it was a fit for World War One, which one didn't. And we were really doing just multiple rounds of qualitative research until we felt that we really honed the message and it was something that we could go to market with. I see. That makes sense. Why not do in-person research? What is the what is the negative side of that and that more traditional approach? In-person research is great for certain objectives. It's typically really expensive. So I can interview somebody over Skype for a lot less cost than I can bringing somebody in person, me and my team flying to a research facility, or online interviews or cell phone interviews are just much more cost effective and you can turn it around much more quickly. You can turn the data around much more quickly. 
But in our case, we didn't want to take any risk with putting any research stimulus online. You know, as much as we want to trust our players, you never know who's sitting on the other side of the screen uh, with a cell phone ready to capture anything and then post it on Reddit. So we chose the um, slightly slower, slightly more expensive method in this case for, you know, 100% security. That makes sense. Yeah, I, I follow that logic. Do you think when people come into a physical research environment, it shapes what they're saying? You know, when, when they walk into the room, do they do they behave differently than they might behave at home? And do you have to account for that? You do. And I think um, a lot of the you know good qualitative research is really dependent on a great moderator or somebody who's leading the discussion and a great setup. So making sure you understand what you're trying to achieve and what's the best methodology for doing that. You know, whether that's going to be a one-on-one interview might be more effective than doing group interviews. You want to go in home when you want to see how somebody's using something in their real life and really get a, you know, context for how they're using your product. If you're talking about concept research and how somebody might react to something, I think okay to do that in a focus group, in a group setting. But you really need to think through all of these situations. We see often you go out and hire a a qualitative research agency. They want to just, you know, throw eight people in the back of a room and do a focus group. And I'd really encourage people to think about, well, is that the right way? Is it better to do a one-on-one? Or um, we do a lot of friendship pairs um, in gaming where you bring people in with a person that they play with in their real life. We've actually done some what we call dueling groups where we'll bring in two different types of players and they don't know that they've been typed as different based on a series of questions that we've asked them. And we force them to have a group discussion, which is really interesting. And then at the end of the group, we tell them, okay, like you guys weren't agreeing because you know, you're different types of players and it leads to some really interesting discussion. Wow. I bet that comes out with uh, very interesting insights about the attitudes and the motivations as people, you know, work through those discussions. That's a, that's a fascinating concept of friendship pairs. I don't think I've ever heard of that. Yeah. You know, there's just some really good ways that you can make people feel comfortable in their environment where they do want to tell you, you know, how they're feeling and they get to be in a little bit more of a natural state and sometimes being with somebody that they know really well can help bring that out for them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. Well, we probably have time for one more example, if you'd like to give any others. Sure. So I think one other example I can talk about is, you know, how we've used research in a situation where we didn't launch a game so effectively. And we have a, a couple of examples of these, but one that I'll talk about is The Sims 4. So The Sims 4 is, you know, a game where you can create lots of different characters. I think many people are probably familiar with it. And we launched The Sims 4 back in 2014, and unfortunately, didn't didn't get a lot of great critical feedback from reviewers and from the community, um, mostly because of some of the decisions about what to put in the game. We did a complete overhaul of some of the main game systems, the game technology, it had a great new building system and a great new create a sim mode, um, since we're much more emotional, which led to great stories. But from the community standpoint, they were looking at the game saying, there's not as much content in here that was in The Sims 3. And The Sims 3 had been built up for many years. We've been releasing content for probably the last five years on The Sims 3. And that's what people were comparing it to. So, you know, we, we went out and we got a lot of critical feedback from our community. And the development team uh, spent a lot of time with our research team figuring out what, you know, players wanted most. And we were able to then patch the game multiple times over multiple years. And they stayed with the community and listened to the community pretty regularly through, you know, social listening, but also through more formal research channels um, and our NPS program. And that allowed them to continue to kind of build back credibility with the Sims team. To now, I think, earlier this summer, we announced that we sold 10 million copies of them. So pretty healthy community today where it didn't necessarily start that way. Yeah, I, I can see the, the value of staying with it over time. Did you have to sell that internally? Was there pressure just to ditch it and move on? Fortunately, The Sims had been a really great franchise for EA, so people weren't really willing to draft the game and, and move on. Um, there was a really great community base that does love everything Sims, and so we were able to get some people on board pretty quickly. But it really did take a lot of empathy from the development teams and the marketing teams to say, okay, we're going to stop and we're going to listen and we're going to try to hear you. Um, how do we communicate that to you while also making sure that communities know that sometimes you know, game teams have to make really difficult decisions like you know, how much content can we put in? What are we choosing between? How are we prioritizing our resources? Because we can't just build everything. 
as you were making those slow and steady changes, did you find that you were, were you always moving forward or was it like, you know, two steps forward, one step back, always tinkering and trying to get the right mix, like a Rubik's Cube in a way? I think there were many ways that we were trying to communicate with the community, that we were listening to them and trying to add as much content as we could for them and listening to them. I'm sure that we didn't get it exactly right the whole path, but I think what we were able to demonstrate to the community is that we were listening and we were putting in the content that they wanted, particularly pools and a couple of years later coming back out with toddlers. And so giving them this content for free made them realize that we weren't trying to just earn more money for them, that it was part of our development process and something that we needed to be able to do over time to get them the the robust content that they were looking for that they had in the Sims 3. Mm-hmm. Yeah, slow and steady. Help, uh, you know, and, and I imagine you're communicating that back out and helping them know that, that good things are coming, hang in there, and, and they continue to engage. That's, uh, that's a really great way to honor the community and to listen and feedback what you're hearing. Uh, so are there particular customer-centric methods that you find are your you know, the screwdriver, the hammer, the the go-to methods that really do a lot of heavy lifting for your customer-centric research? I think there's a couple of things that we do. One is our brand research. So really understanding the essence of what our brands, or in our case, our games, mean to players. So we know that for The Sims, for example, it's really a lot about creativity and expression. And we know, you know what that means for Battlefield. It's about authenticity, and it's about great moments that you can't experience any other game. We talk to a lot of players and they'll they'll talk about those only in battlefield moments. So really understanding what is it about our experience and about our game that makes it special so that we can infuse that into our other product research to make sure that when we're coming up with new product plans that those elements are there and that they exist. And then how do we talk about those things? And it really becomes tricky when you're trying to kind of deliver on a brand essence or a game essence while also creating new, innovative, and and different experiences for players, which is really required and demanded in our industry, which is so fast-moving and changing. And then the other um, piece of research that we focus a lot on is our NPS research. So say what you will about NPS. I think a lot of people love it, and other people don't like it so much as a metric. I think it's been really effective at EA because we've gotten people to pay attention to the player. And so we have both an NPS score, we have a number, and then we have a really robust in-house made text analytics tool and program that we really dig into. We typically get about 10,000 responses from players, everything from, you know, the terrible reasons that everybody hates us and everything we did wrong from the game, even if they're playing it every day, to people that are just gushing with how much they love the game and kind of everywhere in between. And we really dig into this text. We send reports out um, to our players. We've sent, you know, text files to executives where they're reading player comments directly. And so I think, you know, these two pieces of research where the brand research really helping set up the project from the get-go and our NPS research on the back end when we're looking into product and customer satisfaction really work well together to keep us focused on the player. That's a really great insight. I I like the pairing of that. We oftentimes talk about trying to pull through the voice of the customer, but what you said that was so interesting is the executive level attention to that and how it pivots the company to pay attention to the player. Uh, and then coupling that with brand research, which I actually haven't, I've heard of, uh, obviously about brand research before, but the way that you anchor into the brand, uh, sometimes we see customer centricity as a third part of the equity picture. So we see brand equity, operational equity, and customer equity, but the connection here between brand research and customer and hooking that into NPS, I think is fairly unique, and I haven't heard of anyone else doing this. Uh, I love that that focus on what's unique and keeping that um, before you go into the promise of what is the innovation and where should you go so that you never really lose the essence. Yeah, I think it's worked well for us. We've had a few missteps along the way. We've had games where we've tried something new and we had the brand stray too far away from what it means to players and we've learned along the way. So Mm -hmm. um, 
something that we've been focusing on more so in the last couple of years as we've learned how to become more player-centric. But you catch it quickly, and that's what's good is because you're always listening. And I think uh, there are many brands we can think of where they stray from their brand essence and they don't catch it quickly. And all of a sudden they realize the customers aren't there anymore and they start asking themselves why. <laughs> and by yeah. then it's a little bit late. You know, you're a couple years down the road and, and uh, you know, sales are down. At that point, customers are defected. And it must be very, very difficult to win back people once they've gone. Yeah, and I think we've set in place looking at different metrics. Um, you know, we have core player metrics that we focus on, and we've set the metrics in place to be able to track that a little bit more closely so that we don't get too far away. Um, and we do tend to notice if our players aren't coming back or if they're not engaged on our experiences. Can you talk about what those core player metrics are? Um, sure. So we have four core player metrics. One is NPS, which really focuses on the player feedback on our product. One is the number of unique users that are playing a game. And that looks at kind of the scale and volume of people that are coming into our franchise. One is session days, and this is the way that we look at the number of days people are engaging with our product and how many times they're coming back. That's one of our core measures of engagement. And then the last one is average spend per player, um, and that's looking at how much people are, are spending. That's a great focus for the company. I, I see a lot of companies that kind of stray around. And one of the things I really admire about Electronic Arts is the rigorous focus to core metrics, and which is probably the topic for a whole nother show. But I imagine that that helps focus your research because when you know what matters, then you can slice and dice the research to get to those goals. And if you have a very nebulous corporate focus or a, a very nebulous corporate strategy, then it can be very hard to figure out what you should be surfacing in the research. Is that right? Yeah, I think one of the nice things about core player metrics is that they're focused on the player. So what you were just saying is many other companies don't necessarily have the right metrics in place. And we've been able to focus our metrics on the player, which takes the conversation away from game reviews or what did Metacritic say about our game or, you know, what's the overall revenue of the company, which is really important. But when we're focusing on the player, it takes the conversation back to, well, how much do the players like the game? You know, how engaged are the players and, and how many players do we have in our games is really our source of truth so that we can keep the company focused on. Yeah, truly customer centric. Okay, well, let's say that I am interested in, you know, launching a research program and trying to uh, get more customer centric research into my company. What should I do first? One of the things that we advocate, that I talked about earlier, was asking the right questions. So we have our researchers work with our product development partners and our marketing partners to really say, what are the hypotheses? We have them actually fill out a form. And we say, you know, you need to fill out this form. People kind of laugh at us, but it's really helped us deliver research that is strategic in nature, and it gets everybody aligned to the objectives. All too often we see, this is probably pretty common in many companies, that people will ask, you know, they're like, oh, we're going to do a survey, ask a bunch of these questions, and it's not very thoughtful from the outset about how you want to use your research and what you want to uncover. And is it really aligned to the decisions that need to be made about the business? So our researchers focus a lot on what are the business questions. You know, don't come to me with research questions and try to create survey questions or focus group questions, but come to me with what you need me to solve for your business. I think being open and empathetic to your players um, or your customers, and we talked a little bit about avoiding confirmation bias. So don't go into research looking to confirm what you think is right, but also make sure that you're listening to the player and that you're understanding what their truth is. So there's so many times I can remember being in the back room of a focus group with a creative director and having them say, you know, like, we've got to go in the room and we have to tell, tell them that they're wrong, that that's not how the product works in the game. They, that's in the game. We have to go tell them. And what I tell the people in the back room is, no, we need to listen. We're here to listen. Um, and that's their truth. They may be completely wrong, but that's because we haven't done a good job communicating it to them or they don't know everything that's in our game. And so while the customer may be wrong, what they're telling us is what we need to hear. So go in and, and be open and empathetic and don't leave a focus group thinking that the player's wrong or they don't know what they're talking about um, because that's not going to get you anywhere. Mm -hmm. 
And then lastly, I would say empower your researchers and really bring them into your business conversations. So in many companies, research is more of a support function or you know, you're just there to write the survey questions or you're there to deal with the research vendors and coordinate things for us. But if you, you treat researchers like a QA function, you're really limiting their ability to get to great insight by understanding the business problems and what you need them to solve for you. So the more your researcher knows your business challenges, the better um, you know, we can design research and get to great insights with your audience. I love that. It, it makes perfect sense. And you know, here's an area of specialty focus that you know how to conduct research. But what you don't know is the the detail of the business or the product. And that's the partnership is understanding what is the problem to solve and helping them work through that. That's very good, Jody. So let's um, let's take a minute and recap a little bit about what we talked about on the show. But before we do that, if people want to reach you, how can they get in touch with you? Um, you can find me on LinkedIn. Oh, that's easy enough. <laughs> Do you want to go ahead and spell your last name just for people who may not be able to find you? Oh, I'll give it a shot. It's a little bit difficult to spell um, <laughs> out loud. Um, but it's, uh, this is the way I always spell it. A is in Apple, N is in Nancy, T is in Tom, Y is in Yellow, P is in Peter, A is in Apple, S as in Sam. That's great. And and it's Jody with an IE as well. <laughs> That's correct. There are not very many Antipas on uh, LinkedIn, so you should be able to find me no problem. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. So at the top of the show, we talked about why customer-centric research. And um, one of the things you said was that online tools is making it so much faster and, and very nimble, but you still have the importance of getting a good, clear sample and you know, probably the business strategy, as we talked about at the end, as well. So kind of knowing what you're going for, having the clear sample to answer that question, and then the online tools make your life easier. But the online tools don't answer the business question for you or inherently give you the right sample. You have to know what you're going for in the first place. Um, We also talked about mobile phones, making it possible to do real-time research. And what I really loved in this section was the, the target audience identification that you're looking for different audience and the heterogeneity of the whole audience group when you're doing customer-centric research. And that might be a shift in how we thought about research previously when it was really demographically focused. Today, we're really looking at the um, you know, did they stay engaged in the game? Uh, we're not focused so much on just selling the game, but on how do we get them to purchase the next game, which is really building that long-term relationship. So I, I really love the angles that you came up with on the customer-centric research. And I think it's it's not exactly subtle. I still hear people talk all the time about demographics, and it's not that those aren't important, but as you illustrate in the examples, the behavioral attitudinal diversity and motivational diversity, am I right to say that that would be predictive or more predictive than our traditional demographics? Oh, absolutely. We find, you know, we focus much more on motivation and attitudes than we do on traditional demographics. Uh, That's what I thought. And then we went into three examples. We talked about FIFA and the ethnographic researcher. uh, And and this was so interesting because you're looking at the knowledge, you know, again, a really interesting slice of not just looking at how often do they use it or, you know, what geographic area are they from, but, you know, is their level of knowledge low or high? And then uh, we talked about like, like a flower unfolding, using that as the tip the spear for research to then find interesting insights behind it. And that also led us into a little bit of discussion about avoiding confirmation bias and making sure that you're listening for what people are saying. And this you also echoed at the end when you talked about the customer isn't wrong. It's really the customer telling you their truth. And I think by listening to the customer's truth, you help avoid confirmation bias as well. Would that be true? Definitely want to hear what the customer is saying in their own words. 
so going back and talking about uh, Battlefield One and what you were talking about brand essence, this was really looking at the uniqueness of the product and not talking about the fact that it was World War One, but the fact that it was a new experience and epic scale and never the same and just different things that were attracting people to the product where World War One was the vehicle or the story behind it, but the experiences was really what the messaging pushed and the iteration that you did to hone that message I think was very, uh, very very interesting, especially the friendship pairs. Uh, when you talked about doing qualitative research uh, and, and needing a great moderator for that, but then also getting the people to come in and have dueling groups or have a have them in kind of their natural state and pulling them together to get more insights from the messages and the, the things they say and the things they do all in real time. That seems very, very rich. But it's not something, again, that you can do by just picking a couple people out of the lineup. You have to very cleanly and clearly pick the people that you want and match them up correctly in order to get that dueling group nature, right? Yeah, lots of screening uh, and, and preparation goes into groups like that. Oh, I bet. Uh, how much screening goes into that? Is it like a 30-minute call or is it, you know, you're really deeply digging before you pull them in? Um, it's typically a questionnaire and then a follow-up interview. Um, and then, again, we rescreen people on site before they come in. Um, there's a lot of people that want to be a professional focus group participant. We typically <laughs> don't want people like that. So we try to trick them and weed them out and, and make sure they don't actually know what they're coming in to talk about. Ah, very good. Very good insight there. Cool. Uh, and then we talked finally towards the end about the favorite customer-centric research methods, the brand research and the essence, the NPS research, which uh, is always under fire. But I heard the same thing at a, uh, when, we, when we talk about CLV, and we, we talk about that a lot on this show, there's a really nice connection between CLV and NPS research and pulling that together to get a sense of satisfaction and value from the customer. And that leads right into the core player metrics that you talked about, where you're looking at NPS, unique users um, to get to scale and volume, as well as session days, which is unique to Electronic Arts, but is really about engagement. And then, of course, average spend per player. So all of these things really focus the research into becoming a powerhouse for your organization. And it sounds to me like by by getting the organization to be customer centric you have empowered your researchers to start the right kind of conversations and then bring it through the whole organization because everybody knows what they're accountable for is that fair yeah i think that's definitely fair we definitely have shifted the focus more to to the player and accountability to the player anything else you'd like to add jody um i don't think so I wish everyone well doing their strategic product research. Excellent. Excellent. Well, as always, everything we discuss is at ambitiondata.com slash podcast. Jody, thank you so much for bringing all these insights about research today. I know we've just scratched the surface, but you just have a, such a tremendous well of knowledge in this space. And it's really inspiring to see how one company has pulled it all the way through to make really great action happen within the company. So thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Remember, everyone, when you use your data effectively, you can build customer equity. It is not magic, just a very specific journey that you can follow to get results. Thank you for joining today's show. This is your host, Allison Hartzell, and I have two gifts for you. First, I've written a guide for the customer-centric CMO, which contains some of the best ideas from this podcast, and you can receive it right now. Simply text Ambition Data, one word, to 31996, and after you get that white paper, you'll have the option for the second gift, which is to receive the signal. Once a month, I put together a list of three to five things I've seen that represent customer equity signal, not noise. And believe me, there's a lot of noise out there. Things I include could be smart tools I've run across, articles I've shared, cool statistics, or people and companies I think are making amazing progress as they build customer equity. I hope you enjoy the CMO guide and the signal. See you next week on the Customer Equity Accelerator.